0: the best kind of research that we've found is just doing a ton of video-based qualitative research. Because when you hear what other people are saying and see them talk about it, see the nuance in how they explain things and how things aren't working, you really get this understanding of the disconnect between who you think you are and who you actually are.
1: Airbnb and Apple have a couple things in common. They're both design-centric companies, they sell products through best-in-class marketing, and they've achieved incredible success by focusing on the customer. But there's one more thing that they have in common. Hiroki Asai. He currently leads marketing at Airbnb and formerly led marketing at Apple during their most
2: historic product launches. We spoke with Hiroki about his time at Apple and the key elements of their marketing playbook, as well as how he reinterpreted Apple's values and Airbnb's culture. We also spoke about the importance of dog fooding, or as John Maeda calls it, wine tasting your products. And we learned how Airbnb shifted away from traditional product managers and how that affected their marketing and design processes. This is Design Better, where we explore creativity at the intersection of design and technology. I'm Eli Woolery. And I'm Aaron Walter. You can get ad free episodes a week early and get
1: access to our monthly AMAs with big names in design and tech by becoming a DB Plus subscriber. It's also the best way to support the show. Just visit designbetter.plus to learn more. Stay tuned after the interview for a special glimpse inside Automatic, makers of WordPress, which powers more than 40% of all websites around the world. We chat with Matthias Ventura, who's the lead architect for Gutenberg at Automatic, about why communities are so crucial to the success of WordPress. And how being a distributed company gives him an opportunity to meet interesting people from around the world. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news...
1: Hiroki Asai, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast.
0: Of course. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you guys inviting me.
1: Hiroki, you are Global Head of Marketing at Airbnb. And I know a lot of our listeners, designers, and technologists really think of Airbnb as kind of a paragon of a successful company in terms of creating really great experiences. It's designed forward. And there's also a lot of great technology behind the platform as well. And Airbnb just had a significant launch this week. I wonder if you could maybe just give us a quick lowdown on what came out.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. We're really, really excited. We just launched a new feature called Guest Favorites and a brand new listings tab for hosts. I'll talk about Guest Favorites first. You know, Airbnb is kind of interesting because there's actually 7 million homes on Airbnb, which is great because the variety and the uniqueness is unbelievable, but it can also be a little daunting for people, especially when they're new to Airbnb when you come, the variety can be a little bit overwhelming and it could be tough to really understand exactly what you're gonna expect. But Guest Favorites was this design solution to that where we identified two million of our best days that our guests have loved the most. And it's not just by ratings, the way we discovered this, it's by ratings, review, sentiment, Post cancellations, sentiment, and messaging—it's a whole lot of data that goes into really helping people understand what are the homes that people have loved the most. So we're super, super excited about that.
1: I'm excited about it too because as a host, my listing was listed as a guest favorite. Thank goodness! <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, right? How are super hosts different than guest favorites? That seems like you know maybe there's some
0: overlap there. Yeah, there's a little bit of overlap. You know, two-thirds of our guest favorites are actually super hosts. But the thing that's different about guest favorites is it does require to have a certain number of reviews within a certain amount of time. And it also takes a look at all kinds of ratings as well. So not just the star ratings, but also the subcategory ratings around cleanliness and check-in. And so it does tend to be the stays that guests love the most.
1: Hiroki, I know that a lot of the work with the new release that you guys have been doing, there's some interesting AI stuff that's happening. In fact, in Brian Chesky's demo video, he talked a little bit about photo order sorting and so forth. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how AI is being used on the
0: platform. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the most recent applications of AI that we're really excited about is the listings tab photo tour generator. And so what's amazing is that, you know, creating your listing is a lot of work. Managing it is a lot of work and writing it, organizing it, pricing it, doing all that is really tough. And we wanted to take a lot of the work out of it. One of the areas that's still a lot of work is organizing all of your photos. And we know that if you organize it by room, by space, it's so much easier for a guest to understand. But it's also a lot of work to do. And this is where AI can really help us. And so basically, we've analyzed millions and millions of photos over the years to really understand what's in a kitchen, what's in a bedroom, what's in a living room. And so for this release, all you have to do in the listings tab is click create a photo tour. And we will automatically take a look at all of the photos, analyze them, understand what's a kitchen, what's a bathroom, what's a bedroom, what's a living room, and organize that into a photo tour. So it's totally done for you. It's pretty amazing.
2: Heroku, maybe you could talk a little bit about the Airbnb's approach to testing new features, like this new rollout with users. Obviously they're v- very engaged in understanding like what the best experience is. And you don't just push things out. There's a comms plan, there's a way for people to opt in. And even the the language is very friendly to the user. It's not forced on you. You don't say you must do this. You say you may do this. So maybe talk a little bit about, about that.
0: Yeah, as far as testing new features, you know, we we are a giant marketplace. So we are very careful about anything that goes out into our app because of the consequences that it could have. And so we're pretty diligent around making sure that it gets tested with the right audiences and the right countries first to make sure that it's getting the usage that we intended. And then on the guest favorite side, we spent a lot of time talking to super hosts before the launch of this to make sure that they understood the need for it, the system that goes into the ranking of it, and then also answer any questions in case you know there may be a super host that has multiple listings, they may be guest favorites in some and not guest favorites in others and how that appears and what they can do to make sure that all their listings end up being guest favorites. You know, as far as hosts too, another thing that we discovered through our research is that a lot of the listings don't always contain all the information that a guest would need in order to make a decision, which is kind of interesting. You know, I think there's a small single digit percentage of listings that are actually completely filled out and accurate, which seems kind of nuts, because if you're going to you know, book a vacation and invest in a home, you'd want to really know everything that that home has to offer. So when we dug into this, we realized that it was because of our tools. They were just way complicated. They hadn't been touched in years, and there was layers and layers of development on top of each other. And on the host side, it was really, really difficult extremely difficult to try and make any kind of change or adjustment or modification, even adding amenities, simple amenities to rooms and to homes. It was really, really tough. And so part of this release, what we did is redesign that whole side of the app, which we call the listing tab. And so those of you that are hosts are pretty familiar with how difficult and filled with friction that process was. You know, this was years in the making, years of development on the AI side And well over a year of design work to get this done. We're really, really excited. I mean, we took something that used to take hours and probably noodling through dozens and dozens of pages and clicks to do and basically turned it into one page where you can get most things done within one or two clicks. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Can we just go a little deeper into the research process? Because one thing that is fascinating to me about the way that Airbnb operates is there seems to be a united view of these are the primary objectives for the year. So multiple teams across different touch points in the user experience are united towards specific goals of like we've identified you know, the listings tab, the selection process, whatever that might be, to make that better. And oftentimes that might require work across different teams to be able to deliver on that. And then there's like the whole marketing piece, and we'll, we'll dig into that as well. Tell us more about the research. How do you find those specific things and then communicate that throughout the company and say, we're moving towards this beacon on the hill?
0: Yeah, it's funny. When we started this transformation of the company a few years back, we really focused it on why do people use Airbnb, despite what we think? about airbnb internally what our aspirations are for airbnb what do real people actually do and how do they actually use the application and it's really you know when you're traveling you've likely made your decision you may have even booked your flights already and you're coming to get a place to stay right now there's some variability in what neighborhood what street what you want to do but essentially you want to just get a place to stay and so we set out to say okay let's focus on that and let's just make that the best and of simplest, most delightful process as possible for both the guest booking and the host making their listing. And so, once we started with that one principle, we backed out and said, "Let's map every single stage of what we call the guest, the booker, the guest journey." And it turns out it's you know it's basically eight steps that they go through from the minute they open the app. We did the same for the host, and of course, what happens is those eight steps are actually conjoined because you list, the guest searches. The guest checks into a home, you provide check-in instructions to the home. The guest checks out, you provide instructions for the checkout. You write a review, they write a review. And so these steps are conjoined. And when we looked at all of those steps, identified them, we mapped every single piece of the app, every single page against each of those steps. And then we layered on the millions and millions of customer service calls that we've gotten over the years and put those within each step. And then we took an audit of every policy that we've ever written map those against each of those steps. And then we took a look at social sentiment, map those against each of those steps, and we step back and you can actually get a roadmap to understand what parts of the process and the application specifically are breaking down. What's a policy problem? What maybe is a CS issue, you know, and maybe there's an issue with the CS app that needs to be fixed. Maybe it's a thing in the product. Maybe it's expectations, you know, maybe it's the handoff from one step to the other. So we were able to step back and use that map to inform all of these updates and redesigns that we've been doing for the past couple of years. A big part of that is in order to get that done, if you're mapping the entire process, therefore the entire company against one blueprint, you really need then a roadmap that aligns to that and that everyone agrees to and that everyone is on. And so we are a very functionally organized company, but we are strung together by that blueprint of the customer service and a roadmap of products and technologies that we intentionally set you know a year to 18 months out to make sure that we're hitting all of those places and that we're all aligned and that we're all doing the same thing you know that's super important for us
2: so in addition to getting all this data from customers hosts and guests you also many of you use your own products extensively Brian Chesky was on the show a few years ago the founder of Airbnb or co-founder and you know he's been highlighted as hosting people currently, using the app. You could call it dog fooding. You could call it John Maeda likes to call it wine tasting, which is a better term, but like using your own product. How does that factor into all these data that you have and the decisions you're making?
0: Yeah, it definitely informs it. I mean, we all are travelers. We all book. We all try homes. We all talk about homes, share the homes that we've loved, shared our experiences. But to be honest, the best kind of research that we've found is just doing a ton of qualitative research, video-based qualitative research. Because when you hear what other people are saying and see them talk about it and see the nuance and how they explain things and how things aren't working, you really get this understanding of the disconnect between who you think you are and who you actually are. You know, and I think there's that built-in bias in all of us, you know, that Extends. I think it's like how we see ourselves, how we see the company work for, how we see the brands that we create. There's just a whole world of what we imagined it could be, what we want it to be, what our vision for it is, and none of that is understood by the outside world. So I I think it's really, really helpful just to talk to a lot of people and hear firsthand what a lot of people are experiencing and feeling. It sounds kind of basic. It, It sounds kind of like a no brainer, but you know, it's shocking when you see just hours and hours of video of people talking about the process and just what a huge disconnect there is between internal perception and external use.
1: So I find this super interesting because most companies, they don't trust qualitative findings. They feel it's not empirical, it's not quantitative, it's not a large sum of numbers that says like, okay, this is a statistically significant issue that we should our time and energy into the comment or the feedback is that oh that's just one person's perception and you know it's easy to discount that what is it about airbnb's culture where qualitative feedback is listened to recommended sought after whereas so many the vast majority of other companies out there qualitative feedback plays such a small role in business strategy
0: yeah it's interesting you know we do our fair share of the quant, tons and tons of it. And, you know, there's entire extremely smart groups, Airbnb, that are mining through that on a daily basis. But what's interesting, so I guess this goes back to kind of how we're built. So I think first, to answer your question, qual is really, really helpful because it helps you understand the feeling of the data. I know that sounds a little weird, but it really helps you understand, like, the sentiment and the human experience of where that data is coming from, right? You can actually feel what the customer is going through versus just understanding how they're moving through the app. Now, the way we're built is it's very, very functional. We have a creative team that does the advertising. We have a marketing team. We've got a design group that does the design and then a product marketing group that focuses on the product engineering. Now, all those groups sit really, really closely together. We have this point of view that for each of those leads of each of those groups, you have a team that you're accountable for, that you drive, and then you have a primary team, which is actually your peers. And so that primary team of leads work extremely close together, and they're the audience for that data. you know. And so when they see a bunch of quant around new users and what they're experiencing, it's really really helpful and insightful for them to see what the qualitative is, what the lived human experience is. It's really important for them to kind of feel it and see it Because all of that insight informs the advertising, it informs the marketing, it informs the actual design of the pages, of the app itself, and of the app, its strategy, all of its features, where it's going, and its roadmap. And so that primary team is very, very receptive and uses that qualitative in a much more nuanced way. Do you feel that that is
1: in any way an artifact of Airbnb being co-founded by designers?
0: I think so. There is definitely, you know, a lot of the way we work and the culture of the company and the way we operate is directly because we have a creative CEO and creative founders. And so it is in the DNA of the company to be able to ground yourself in the human side of things, you know, not just completely rely on the data, but actually understand the human emotion of things. So I think naturally there's a leaning towards being accepting of that, Yeah, which is huge. I mean, to give you a, a good example of this process, if you take, for example, people coming to Airbnb for the first time, as we mature, as we get bigger, we need to go beyond our installed base and appeal to travelers that have never tried us before. And so we did a ton of research on this, a ton of research on why people think about Airbnb, why they come to us, why they don't book, why they book somewhere else why they do book, you know, on and on and on and on. And then we did a bunch of interviews with folks too. And what's amazing is that we realized that people just choose hotels out of default just because they see it in movies, they've grown up with it. A hotel is synonymous with just staying someplace else when you're on vacation. And a home is synonymous with being at home. But people, especially traveling groups, have not connected the dots that if you're in a hotel with a family, likely you're gonna need two rooms and good luck trying to find an adjoining room. They almost don't exist in hotels. And worse yet, if you do cram into a room, everyone goes to bed when the youngest kid goes to bed, or everyone's gonna be eating dinner (laughs) on the bed and fighting over when it's their time in the shower. The hotels are not built for families. And so most people who travel just, you know, and I don't blame them, life is busy, you make your travel decisions at the last minute sometimes, it's not super fun to book travel, And so you just go to your default, but people haven't really put two and two together that group travel is much better in an Airbnb than in a hotel. And so seeing people talk about it and seeing people like, oh, my gosh, you're right. I never really thought about, oh, you're right. You know, why are we all in one room? Oh, for a group, why do we all split up at the end of the night? You know, really helps us realize from the marketing and advertising side, the conversation that we need to have really helps us understand on the design of the application and where we're going to take the application, the mindset that we're working with when people come to us. So all of that is super, super helpful.
2: Hiroki, I'm curious if there are any, Aaron mentioned artifacts, I'm going to use it in a different sense here, any artifacts that you create that sort of capture some of these stories. And I'm thinking, you know, we've discussed on the show before about the storyboards that you created years ago actually brought in Disney animators or sketch artists to create very well-produced storyboards that capture parts of the user journey are there any other kinds of artifacts that you used to share the stories of the qualitative research that you're gathering
0: yeah you know it's interesting for the qualitative it's just tons and tons of video (laughs) we create a lot of artifacts and boards around visually mapping things it's a little bit of a tangent but we love creating artifacts because it's so funny when people have conversations and meetings, they talk over keynote presentations, you kind of sense you get alignment, but unless you see a picture of it and everyone sees the edges of it, the middle of it, the top and the bottom of it, you realize that you actually are way out of alignment or people don't really understand what you're talking about. And so artifact creating for me is like a super invaluable way to get people out of their heads and be able to agree on something physical. On the emotional side, on helping people to kind of really empathize with our audiences, it's just straight up video, video after video after video.
1: Maybe we could just dig into the kind of tactics of that, because when you've got tons of video, that's awesome. How do people access that? I know that when I was leading the UX team at Mailchimp, we would go shoot like these mini documentaries and we'd do a lot of video with customers. And it became a challenge to, like, how do we then get a lot of people to watch this? Is there some centralized area, you know, like video space where people go watch this? Do you have internal events where people go watch these things together? What are the tactics for getting that out there?
0: Here's my thinking on it, is I always get worried that when you get a lot of video, you get a video editor. The video editor is going to twist the story subtly, right? Then that someone's going to take that video and put words on the top and bottom of it that will twist the bias a little bit. And then it'll be in a presentation that will twist the bias again a little bit more. And so for me, it's really important for people to experience the raw video with as little bias as possible. And I think the way to do that is you just have to experience it one on one together. And so with the way that we're functionally designed and the way that the horizontal primary team works so closely together, we're just together a lot and we just talk a lot. And because there is no hierarchy, and because we have a line of command that's so simple, it affords us the opportunity just to have these primary conversations without having to have secondary, tertiary conversations and sell-ups and sell-ins. And so decisions can be made quickly. Things like video can be absorbed by the decision makers very quickly, and in its raw state, without a lot of presentation bias and confirmation bias kind of losing its way into it. So it's kind of a two-part solution. I think one is when it's something as delicate as emotional response, we keep the tools as simple as possible. And then in the way that we absorb it and cascade it, we keep the structure as simple as possible. So the primary decision makers are seeing it in its raw form.
1: We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all. To quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash better today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash designbetter. And now, back to the show.
2: Hiroki, we want to focus the conversation mostly on your Airbnb work, but we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about your time at Apple, given that you were there at a very seminal moments with the launch of the iPad and iPhone and this kind of rebirth of the company. What we're mostly curious about is how you kind of bring over the values that you learned there and reinterpret them at Airbnb. What are some of those lessons that you've brought and kind of adapted to your work at Airbnb? Yeah.
0: There's a couple things that we practice at Airbnb that I think comes from that culture. Well, they're simplicity and adjacency is how we think about it. Right. Now, simplicity is pretty simple. Adjacency is a little complicated, but I have this firm belief. Like my experience there was that, you know, it was such a tight team and it was so small at the time that everyone was always in meetings with other people. And it wasn't uncommon for a graphic designer to meet with an engineer or a product marketer, software engineer, hardware engineer, packaging engineer. And that intense collaboration was amazing. You know? And so if you have a simple organization like we do at Airbnb and you have the ability for people to have teams they manage and then primary teams that they work with like we do at Airbnb, it creates that adjacency. You know, and so we have our research and insights team literally sitting right with our leads of the advertising group, with the marketing group, with the design group, with the product group, and all the insights that they gain through their separate functions, working against a larger set of insights, feed each other, you know? And so interesting advertising ideas come from a design exploration or a design insight. Interesting feature ideas may come from something that, you know, the marketing and advertising teams have discovered in the behavior of people. And so that adjacency is super, super critical. And you have to have a really simple organization, a really simple roadmap, and a really simple set of goals in order to let that adjacency kind of magic happen. That is
1: very unique to have that sort of backflow, that marketing and advertising would flow back into product. Normally, it's just one way. The river only goes from product out to marketing, like we made this thing. Now go sell it for us. You know, that's usually how that works.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's crazy. That's just bananas to work that way. I mean, what I always thought was amazing is that the creatives that work in advertising think and create something so different than creatives that work in marketing communication, than creatives that work in clearly, you know, application design. And the way they use creativity, their insights on how they interface and interact with a customer, what they expect, how they show up, what the response is, and how a customer on the other end receives all those things individually and together is just fascinating to me. And how a writer works with an art director to create an idea versus how a writer works with an experienced designer to create a behavior, you know, and just how those disciplines shift. But... What I think is amazing is when those people are as close together as possible, you start to understand what the customer is seeing. And so it's really, really important that the product folks and the application design folks are working on something very close to the marketing advertising teams because those teams are going to have to explain it in 15 seconds. And so if you're creating something with a final output that can't be explained in 15 seconds you're going to get zero adoption of it. It's a really, really good discipline to have to be able to understand up and down the chain. And I think that, you know, that only happens when you have that simple structure and adjacency of talent. But it's hard to do. We're lucky because we have a creative CEO and creative founders and the DNA are set in creativity, you know, to allow for that to happen, to be tolerant of it. If you can work that way, it's so much more of a fascinating and joyful way to work
1: Let's just go a little deeper into this. So the adjacency and what's happening behind the scenes is fascinating. I think that's part, you know, that people don't really, they don't see. But I've got to say, you know, the work that you and the marketing team did at Apple for that passage of time, like this is the renaissance of our recent era of technology that you were there. The Apple playbook for marketing is so copied. It's like the way people write, the way people lay out a page, like Websites and templates and so forth follow that same structure. I wonder if you could unpack like the values or philosophy about that messaging and storytelling that you learned and that you're bringing with you over to Airbnb. When we're thinking about like a marketing campaign, there's a new launch, what are those elements that you're thinking about that are so essential to success?:
0: I was really lucky to be an observer and participant in that era. And I think the thing that I walked away with was that there's, and we think about this at Airbnb all the time too, is that when you're working at a company like Airbnb, that's so big and it's two-sided, it's a little bit complicated. It's very easy to forget why someone's coming to you, what they're experiencing and how they leave and what you want them to do. And so you really need to be working off of one set of insights That's kind of my biggest learning through the years is that there's one person at the tail end of this. And if you don't organize your company to be able to work towards one perspective, you're not going to create things that work towards one perspective. A simpler example of this is that when the application design teams have a meeting with the marketing team, it's not the head of application design is going to meet with the head of advertising, you know, and they're going to have a series of program managers to translate across the two it's Teo is going to meet with Scott and Eric and they're going to, you know, hammer out what's happening over lunch and figure it out. And if it involves engineering, they'll bring in David and those teams work really, really closely together. Now we're lucky. We're really, really lucky because we have people that we've worked with over the years and hired that are very familiar and senior enough to understand the nuance of all these differences. And not feel threatened, but really understand where the adjacencies are and where the overlaps are and how to navigate the two and how it all works together. But the short answer to your question is I've just learned that the least amount of translation and structural translation you have between these customer-facing teams, the better the work, the simpler the work. It's just so much more of a joyful process, you know? Sure. Yeah, Yeah, to sit with people that you vibe really well with have the same mindset, can ideate together with, and then are really good, you know, and you can plus each other's
2: ideas. Hiroki, you began your career, or at least prior to Apple, you were working in an agency with Apple as a client and also Pixar. And then at Airbnb now, it sounds like you may have presided over or come in around the time that much of the agency work was all brought in-house. Can you talk about that decision and what the pros and cons around that might have been?
0: Yeah, That was really, really intentional. You know, when I started my career way back, this was probably like 140 years ago from now, when I started my career, everything was outsourced. You know, only like kind of odd or gross consumer packaged goods companies or big insurance companies would have in-house design departments, and they were mostly production teams. And all the great people and the cool people and the great thinkers and designers worked at design firms and agencies. And that slowly kind of flipped over time, you know, and it's become in-house. And I'm just a firm believer that that whole structure of putting creatives in agencies is rough, is really, really rough because it's it's always going to put creativity at the back end of the process. And you're going to have all of this overhead and infrastructure on both sides, client and agencies, in order to manage the relationship and kind of police it in some way to make sure that the agency thrives of the business and the business gets the value and the product that it needs. And the cost of all that, I think, is the work. And so I've been this firm believer that if you can build it in-house, if you have the right kind of leadership, if you have the right kind of DNA, if you have the talent of people that want to work that way, it's so much of a better product and a better way to work. It's hard, though. It's not easy. And even we struggle with it every day because It's very, very easy for people in-house. And this is why it was probably outsourced in the early days. It's very, very easy for people in-house to create that in-house bias, to fall into this thinking that you are the brand, you're the part of the company, and you kind of lose touch with the outside perspective and outside point of view. So you kind of have to work extra hard to keep that. But at the end of the day, if you can balance that, if you can maintain that, I think the quality is so much higher.
1: So you've talked a bit about simplicity, simplicity in the structure, simplicity in having a limited number of insights and everyone kind of marching towards that. One of the challenges, though, with doing any sort of significant launch or marketing campaign is that you've got to deploy whatever that messaging, those assets across so many different touch points. There's a workflow inside the app, which requires a lot of kind of technical coordination, There's the typical stuff on the website, there's email sequences, there's videos to be shot. Could you walk us through how your team maps out all of those different pieces and thinks about how it all fits together from a consumer's point of view?
0: We are really excited about and very proud of our program management function at the company. Now, at most places, I think program management is looked at as pretty tactical. But we think about it really differently. The way we think about it is a good metaphor is a human body, right? We all have organs that are designed to do very independent, single-purpose things. But in order for all those things to work together and to function, you have to have a nervous system and a circulation system that's unbelievable. And so if something is malfunctioning in one part of the body, other parts can compensate for it. Or if the body's undergoing something needs more oxygen, it knows to increase lung capacity or increase the heart rate and so you know our program management group functions a lot like this is as we roll towards a big event or a big moment or a big application release you're right there's like tons of marketing there's tons of host communications that have to go out there's tons of application work that has to happen there's tons of emails there's tons of user group things that have to happen community things that have to happen and so our program management function is like that circulatory system and they have a sense of the entire operating model. And so they know that if something is happening in this corner of the world, how that's going to affect a host, how that's going to affect Superhost, the knock-on effects of the application, the knock-on effects to marketing, what's in flight in advertising at the time, or what have we invested in other marketing things that we're building, how we have to adjust. And so you know, as we're rolling, we do have this really dynamic fluid program management system that's cascading information up, down, back and forth.
2: One other kind of interesting structural thing at the company, and Brian Chesky talked about this a little bit recently at the Config, Figma conference, is the sort of change that was made to the product manager role. And one thing you would describe was essentially elevating designers to the level of product managers. I know this isn't actually right in your wheelhouse, but maybe could you talk a little bit about that as it relates to your teams as well?
0: Sure, sure. As it relates to our teams is rather than having you know, product managers that are working on isolated stovepipe pieces of the application. Now, when that happens, you can imagine, you can optimize like at a granular level, but the problem is one person has to experience every single one of those things. And it's very easy to create tech debt and design debt that creates inconsistencies, friction, head-scratching, and frustration for customers. And so, by introducing a product function that's much more holistic and built and organized around the experience, working really, really closely, you know, it's a three-legged stool between product design and marketing, working really, really closely together, I think for a brand like ours and for a company like ours, it's a much, much better way to work, much more insightful. And again, you know, when you have it structured that way, you can access the customer insights, the qual and the quant that I spoke of earlier, that the advertising teams are harvesting, the product teams can then harvest it because they're working and organized, in a way, around the experience, as are the designers, as is the front-end engineering teams. It's a different way to work, but I think it's much more customer-friendly. Where this comes from is, at most of the companies I've worked at in the past, what's different from other product companies that create a product is that the impact that you have on people and the way people use it is abstracted by this product. You're making this thing. You're making this thing that people go use to then do something with. is really different because we're putting people in other people's houses. There is no abstraction between you and the impact of your work on other people. And so you have to work with and embrace all of humanity because you're working with them directly. You have to embrace in all its glory and all of its warts too. And so... You know, you think about the experience differently. You think about policy differently. You think about trust differently. And it's just a totally different way to work. And I always thought, and I think everyone does, is that you really need to optimize for that human. Because at the end of the day, you're taking that person. They're trusting you. You're putting them in a home for a vacation that they've maybe saved all year for to go on with their family.
1: Hiroki, one thing about your line of business is that there's a lot of high pressure moments that, you know, marketing and all of this work and program management that leads up to this big launch event, the head of steam just keeps building and building and building. And that could be expensive personally, you know, like trying to deal with these big launches. You've got that here and then I can imagine, you know, at Apple with the types of things you were launching when you were launching and the personalities and so forth, that's a lot to kind of go through and adapt. How have you personally survived those moments in your career, high-pressure moments?
0: Yeah, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny. All my colleagues joke that my biggest gift is I'm completely emotionally disengaged. <laughs> 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 I don't know if that's a good thing they say about me or a bad thing, but no, you know, I, at the end of the day, like, it is just work, you know, and it is just a job, and it's something that we all love. And so I just have always tried to keep it fun and funny, you know, keep it joyful and have a good time with things. And it is like that kind of inside-outside perception versus reality. And like if you're under a lot of stress and freaking out and you're really in it and your head's completely absorbed, you know, sometimes I imagine if there was a Martian standing next to me that just got plopped down on Earth, they'd be saying, oh, there's this human just staring at a computer for 12 hours. And so like what's real and what's not, you know, (laughs) what are you actually doing? And so at the end of the day, it's the real things, the things that I focus on, which is, you know, my wife and my kids and our travels and our experiences. And I always try to keep all that stuff in perspective. And I think kind of taking it seriously, but also then having fun with the absurdity of it all and laughing at it has always helped that and maybe some emotional detachment too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So it reminds me. I just got some advice from my brother-in-law, who's he just happens to have been in the military for a long time. He was deployed in Iraq, and there was stressful times during his career. No need to mention. But he said one of his commanders said to him at a certain point, like treat the unusual moments like the usual moments, as a way to deal with the stress. And that's it was kind of interesting just to hear that perspective. It sort of resonates with what you're saying there. It's like this is work. You know, let's have fun. Let's get out there. Yeah, it can be stressful, but maintaining your your composure and and anchoring on the things in your life that are truly important, like your family, get you through it.
0: Yeah, I've always found it important and really, really critical to be able to draw boundaries around what's truly the important thing in your life, and then you know, versus things that in the moment may seem the most important thing in the world, actually kind of aren't at the end of the day. What's a construct, maybe, and what's not? I think it's kind of an abstract way to think about it, but I think it helps. And then I think when you think that way, things kind of do get kind of absurd and funny, (laughs) you know? Yeah. What are you most proud of in your career or in your life? I think the thing that I'm most proud of in my life is definitely, you know, this life of of adventure that my wife has built for us and that, you know, myself and my kids participate in. (laughs) and all enjoy together. I think that's probably one of the the things I'm most proud of and would want you know, all five of us to remember at the end of the day. And then career-wise, I think I'm just happy that I was able to pursue the things that brought me joy. I've been super, super, super lucky to be able to just pursue the things that brought me joy. And it's taken different forms and different shapes. I always index towards doing things that I found kind of funny and fascinating and fun. And I've been super lucky that it's brought me to some interesting places. But, you know, I always am very intentional about drawing the boundary between maybe what's real and what's not. And I think, you know, my family and family life is very real. And, you know, work is great. Work is fulfilling. It's amazing. But there's something else you want to remember at the end of the day.
2: Roke, before we let you go, we often ask our guests what's inspiring them at the moment. So is there anything right now, it doesn't have to be work-related, obviously, but any books, movies, TV shows, podcasts that you're finding particularly inspiring?
0: Yeah, you know, aside from the stuff I just mentioned, I just read this book, Clara and the Sun by Ishiguro. And I bring that up and, because I think it's fascinating because he writes this book from the point of view of an android. And you don't really understand what's happening a lot of the times because it's not super obvious in the way that he paints the picture. He paints it through her perceptions of the world and how she experiences emotion and experiences things. And it's very subtle. It's not super deliberate. It's not super obvious. But I love this idea of playing with the inside and the outside and what goes on in your head what you think is happening versus what's really happening in the outside and how people perceive you versus how you experience it. You know, There's a lot of parallels between design and brands and marketing and work in general. And maybe self, too, around how other people experience you versus how you experience yourself. I always find that kind of fascinating.
1: Sounds like a great read. Hiroki, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk.
1: In this episode of Office Hours from Design Better, we're speaking with Matthias Ventura, lead architect for Gutenberg at Automatic. Automatic's a fully distributed company with the goal of democratizing publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it. Matias talks about the importance of community to the WordPress project and why one of Automatic's principles is that the end user always comes first.
3: My name is Matias Ventura. I'm a lead architect, engineer at The Gutenberg project is an editor. It mainly revolves around this idea of blocks. So blocks are essentially anything that you can create or express with. So in a document, paragraphs, headings, quotes, all of those elements would be blocks. And Gutenberg is, I describe it as two editors essentially, because one is for writing and the other one is for design. Because this same idea of blogs is also what then evolves into an editor that allows users and designers to essentially create a full site with headers, menus, cybers, and so forth, and all these sort of elements combined together. Given WordPress powers so much of the web these days, that the responsibility and the audience is really wide. One of the major principles, I think, is that the end user always comes first. So even though, yeah, it has to be very flexible platform, a very flexible technology to allow developers and freelancers and then like more sophisticated builders to do more things. The end user experience always needs to come first. So I think that's one of the main guidelines that we have. I think some of the other elements that we use to balance these audiences, more technical things like semantic output or performance, those are things that are very dear to the heart and soul of WordPress. WordPress from the very beginning evolved as a very tied to like the web standards movement. We want the output of the editor, anything you produce there to be semantic, accessible, usable, and so forth. The communities, I think, is also one of the pillars of how WordPress evolved. It's been really driven by this ethos from the very beginning. I think Gutenberg is an interesting example because we started working on this around 2016, 2017. It was released in WordPress in like 2018. It was a big shift for the community because the heart and soul of the WordPress experience is the editor. So changing such a fundamental aspect, it comes with a lot of friction, a lot of uh, attachments from people and so forth. So that was a long process, not just in building the product itself, but in aligning the community, ensuring that everyone was being heard, that the experience was being shaped with that feedback into account and so forth. I think it's safe to say that the WordPress community is incredibly passionate, which comes with the great aspects of having people that care and are involved and they want to see the success of it, but also a lot of like very strong opinions and it's an emotionally charged environment sometimes. The challenges of what we work on has kept me very interested in the work. And I think the other thing has been the people. Automatic is a fully distributed company all over the world. So like you're constantly running into experiences and people with all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, And being able to work with such interesting people, at least to me, it always keeps it fresh. The project is alive as ever, is really covering a lot of new ground. So I want more people to become involved in the creative aspect of it, not just as consumers of the software. If people want to contribute and come in and play with those ideas, this is a place where people can join in, start contributing, start throwing in ideas. I think there's a lot of cool stuff happening in WordPress these days that may not be immediately seen by people or the wider industry. So if people go to WordPress.org, there's a lot of path to get it involved in all sort of the different areas. Like if you're a designer and you want to contribute with themes and so forth, that sort of gives you the path. Specifically for Gutenberg the editor, in WordPress.org slash Gutenberg, all the development is open. Like you can see the roadmaps on GitHub, on all the different channels that are there. And yeah, it's just as easy as following those paths and starting participating on the conversations.
2: To learn more about career opportunities at Automatic, go to dbtr.co slash automatic with two t's. That's dbtr.co slash A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C. Eli and I love
1: producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.